Welcome to a Friday night edition of Tisky Sour. We are talking about Cressida Dick's resignation as Met Commissioner. We've been saying for a while, it is long overdue that she goes. What is the implication of her having left? Um, we'll also be talking about Keir Starmer's newfound love of NATO, Neil Coyle getting suspended from the Labour Party, and a confected row involving Adele. I'm joined tonight by Aaron Bastani. How are you doing, Aaron? Michael, I'm doing great. Great to be joining you. I hope I'm coming through loud and clear. Looking forward to some sensational stories. Cressida Dick has quit as Commissioner of the Metropolitan Police. She announced her resignation in this statement. Following contact with the Mayor of London today, it is quite clear that the Mayor no longer has sufficient confidence in my leadership of the Metropolitan Police Service for me to continue as Commissioner. He has left me no choice but to step aside. I say this with deep sadness and regret. That announcement came just hours after Dick appeared on BBC Radio London, where she said this. I have absolutely no intention uh, of going. Uh, and I believe that I am and have been actually uh, for the last five years uh, leading a real transformation in the Met. We have a service now which is, I'm absolutely certain, more professional, fairer, more transparent, more accountable and closer to its communities and more effective in, for example, reducing violent crime, uh, which has been going down year on year on year in almost every category, uh, bucking the national trend. So we have been performing uh, and we have uh, good people in the main. I have been transforming uh, the, the way people are, the who the people are, and, and the way they conduct themselves. Quite the turnaround. We'll be going through some of the claims made there by Dick later on in the show. Dick's resignation came just a day after the Mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, put her on notice, publicly demanding that she present him with a plan for rooting out racist, misogynistic and homophobic police officers from the force. She was due to have a face-to-face -face meeting with Khan to discuss those plans but after being informed the London mayor had lost confidence in her, Dick resigned instead. Khan released this statement about Dick's departure. Last week, I made clear to the Metropolitan Police Commissioner the scale of the change I believe is urgently required to rebuild the trust and confidence of Londoners in the Met and to root out the racism, sexism, homophobia, bullying, discrimination and misogyny that still exists. I am not satisfied with the Commissioner's response. On being informed of this, Dame Cressida Dick has offered her resignation, which I have accepted. It's clear that the only way to start to deliver the scale of the change required is to have new leadership right at the top of the Metropolitan Police. Reaction to Dick's resignation has been mostly positive, but at least one person is reportedly unhappy about it. That's Home Secretary Priti Patel. She has the authority to hire and fire Met Commissioners, though in practice they also need to retain the confidence of the London Mayor. The Times write, Priti Patel is furious that the Mayor did not tell her he was withdrawing his support from Dick and effectively forcing her out. Home Office sources said it was rude and unprofessional that Khan did not inform Patel he was calling a crunch meeting with Dick to discuss her future. 
Aaron, as I say, we're going to look in detail at Dick's career as a senior police officer just in one moment. First, though, I want your sort of big picture initial reaction to Sadiq Khan forcing out Cressida Dick. What took her so long, I suppose, is the, is, is the strange one for me. You know, I saw in The Spectator a few days ago, Michael, why we should defund the police. You know, when you see arguments like that in circulation in a right-wing magazine, you've got a big public relations problem, which is terminal, which I think is the case anyway for the London Metropolitan Police Service. And I think they had to take a step back and say, look, if we carry on with this person, we are tanking ourselves possibly for good. Of course, it seems like the uh, the sword of Damocles was uh, wielded by Sadiq Khan, but I think that logic was was cutting through to the powers that be. So I think it was a matter of time, particularly after the, uh, the Koshka Duff story uh, a few weeks ago. Well, what happened to Koshka Duff story is just one of the many disgraces which has befallen the Met while Cressida Dick has been in charge. Let's go through those in more detail now. Cressida Dick has finally left the top job at the Metropolitan Police. I say finally because it's long overdue. Her record as Met Commissioner is appalling. We can begin this story even before she got that top job, though, because Dick first came to public attention in 2005, 12 years before leading the Met. Back then, she was working on Operation Kratos, which was formed in response to the threat of suicide bombers. The 22nd of July 2005 was the day after the second set of London bombings that month. On that day, Dick found herself gold commander in the control room as counter-terrorist police hunted down the five terrorists whose bombs had failed to detonate on rush hour tubes and buses. That morning, Jean-Charles de Menezes, a 27-year-old electrician originally from Brazil, left his home in Tulse Hill to go and fix a broken fire alarm. What he didn't know is that an undercover police squad was carrying out surveillance on his block of flats after a gym card with that address was recovered from the backpack of one of the failed bombers. One of the officers compared Menezes to the CCTV footage of four of the bombers. He thought there was a match. However, he was urinating at the time and so didn't transmit images of Menezes back to Dick in the control room. Based just on the word of one officer, Dick ordered a team to pursue and surveil Menezes, giving the command to prevent him from entering the underground. Now let's have a look at the bombers the Met were after. There isn't much of a resemblance. Menezes boarded a bus to Brixton Station. Unknown to him, so did several undercover officers. But Brixton Station was closed. Menezes made a quick phone call, then got another bus to Stockwell Station. At this point, the plainclothes officers decided that his behaviour was suspicious. One officer radioed the control room to say that Menezes had Mongolian eyes and Dick's logist inside the control room recorded her saying, it is him, the man is off the bus, they think it is him and he is very, very jumpy. At 10am, Menezes bought a newspaper and entered Stockwell Station and Dick transferred control of the operation from Gold Command to the Specialist Firearms Unit. Three surveillance officers followed Menezes to the tube. He sat down. One of the officers stopped the tube door from closing with his foot. When the armed officers arrived, he shouted, he's here. Two armed officers entered the tube. Menezes was dragged from his seat and he was shot 11 times in the head at close range. The shootings left his body unrecognisable. At Menezes' inquest in 2008, a witness reported that the armed officers failed to identify themselves. 
Out of control, that's how the police who shot dead Jean-Charles de Menezes have been described by a witness at the inquest into his death. Commuter Anna Dunwoody was sat just yards from where the innocent Brazilian was shot at point-blank range by police marksmen. The 27-year-old had been mistaken for a suicide bomber when he was killed on a tube train at Stockwell Station in July 2005. Miss Dunwoody also told the jury she was very, very clear that officers did not shout armed police before opening fire. She said she thought they were a gang and described a sense of panic from the officers. She said they were shouting amongst themselves. She then described how she'd been most frightened of one of the surveillance officers, codenamed Ivor, who had been sat near her, and how Mr. de Menezes had appeared calm as a gun was held to his head. Two other witnesses sat near the carriage doors have also said they had no recollection of warnings from the armed police. Immediately after his killing, the police began fabricating stories to justify their actions. This was Ian Blair, the Met Commissioner at the time. I can say that as part of the operations linked to yesterday's incidents, Metropolitan Police officers have shot a man inside Stockwell Underground Station. Uh, both London Ambulance Service and the Air Ambulance attended and the man was pronounced dead at the scene. Uh, and I understand that Stockwell Tube Station remains closed. The information I have available uh, is that this shooting is directly linked to the ongoing and expanding anti-terrorist operation. I need to make clear that any death is deeply regrettable. But on, uh, as I understand the situation, the man was challenged and refused to obey police instructions. That statement was false. Nobody challenged Menezes. The police also claimed that his suspicious clothing and behaviour convinced them that he was a danger. In August 2005, the BBC reported leaked documents from the IPCC investigation into the death last week appeared to contradict initial police and witness statements about the incident. Scotland Yard had been quoted as saying that Mr Menezes's clothing and behaviour added to suspicions on the 22nd of July, a day after four failed bombings on the transport network, that he was a suicide bomber. But a leaked photograph of the body of Mr Menezes on the tube showed he was wearing a denim jacket at the time of the shooting, not a bulky one, as previously described by a witness. The Met Police also said that Menezes had run. Reports circulated that he had vaulted a ticket barrier, arousing their suspicion, and then fled onto the tube. The media circulated that claim. Finally, in early 2006, a woman contacted the police claiming that Menezes had sexually assaulted her in 2002. The police investigated her claim, but also made the claim public in March 2006. A blood sample taken from Menezes' body in April 2006 cleared him, but his family saw it as a deliberate attempt by the police to smear Menezes ahead of investigations into their conduct. His cousin, Patricia de Silva Armani, said... We have always known that Jean was innocent of this horrific allegation. We can only believe that the allegation was leaked to the press by the police to try and tarnish our cousin's character. The police first claimed Jean was a suicide bomber, then that he was an illegal immigrant, and now that he was a rapist. That they do this to a man they have murdered is absolutely beyond belief. Have the police no respect. That was his cousin, not sister, as I said. My apologies there. Despite these deadly errors in the operation that Dick was conducting, she was exonerated at trial in 2007. But even before that trial reached its verdict, Dick had been promoted. She became Deputy Assistant Commissioner of Security and Protection in 2006. 
In 2008, she gave evidence at Menezes' inquest, stating, If you ask me whether I think anybody did anything wrong or unreasonable on the operation, I don't think they did. Nothing wrong. Nothing unreasonable. Dick became commissioner in 2017, appointed by Theresa May. The mood was celebratory. The Met had its first female leader who was also gay. It seemed an important step forward. But whatever they thought they were going to get from her, improvements in the Met simply haven't materialised. No matter what Dick did or what happened in the force she was in charge of, she somehow managed to keep her job, rallying support from all sides. There was the case of Bieber Henry and Nicole Smallman, sisters who were murdered. The officers left to guard their bodies, instead took photographs of them, digitally altering them and sharing them online. Dick kept her job. In 2021, the inquiry into the police investigation of Daniel Morgan's murder found the Met institutionally corrupt and accused Dick of personally interfering in its proceedings. Dick kept her job. Next to the case of serial killer Stephen Port, last year a jury inquest into the deaths of four of his victims concluded that Met Police failings had contributed to the murder of three of them. Dick kept her job. And again in 2021, following the kidnap, rape and murder of Sarah Everard by a serving Met Police officer and the violent way that the police treated the women at her vigil, Dick not only kept her job, but had her contract Extended. She was backed at the time by Priti Patel and Sadiq Khan to lead the Met for another two years. And even Labour leader Keir Starmer still gave her his full support. Um, very quickly, though, Doreen Lawrence introduced you yesterday yeah. at conference. She has, you know, been part of the petition to say that Cressida Dick's um, time shouldn't be extended by another two years in, in charge of the Met Police. Is Cressida Dick fit to continue? Would you want her out now too? No, uh, Cressida Dick uh, is fit to continue. I've worked with Cressida over many years in relation to some very serious operations when I was Director of Public Prosecutions um, and I was pleased that her contract was extended uh, and I support her. After overseeing the operation where an innocent man was killed and then the Metropolitan Police lying about him. Dick was promoted twice. She then stayed in post through scandal after scandal after scandal. What explains her, well, at least up till yesterday, success? Well, I think part of the answer to that, Michael, is actually to go back immediately to that clip we just showed of uh, Keir Starmer on Good Morning Britain. Now, when this happened, I believe that the Director of Public Prosecutions, i.e. the head of the Crown Prosecution Service, Britain's top lawyer, was Ken MacDonald. His successor was none other than Keir Starmer. As the police account of the, uh, the, the Menezes murder, execution, whatever you want to call it, killing, as that account fell apart, as a jury found that it wasn't a lawful killing, this then went back to the Director of Public Prosecutions, who at this time was Keir Starmer. What did he do with this information, which you've just recounted now, and the fact that a jury of regular people determined it wasn't a lawful killing? What did he do? Nothing. He backed the police, despite clear evidence of, I think, I think wrongdoing. I think that's quite, quite obvious, and it should have been gotten to the bottom of, and it wasn't. Why? Because we don't have proper scrutiny and accountability in this country for many, many parts of public life, particularly with the police. I mean, it's, it's just astonishing, the extent to which there's no independent oversight of, of how they behave. And this was just a very, very glaring example of it. 
And that man who chose not to go any further, who was director of public prosecution, is now the leader of the Labour Party, which really just, just goes to show the insulated nature of the British elite, the British establishment. Now, she was, you know, the, the child of uh, Oxford academics. She was a high flyer in the Met. She was going places. She obviously made the right connections. And Michael, killing some Brazilian immigrant, or she, she didn't kill him personally. She was the gold commander on the day. Clearly, things went wrong under her watch. That isn't good enough to stop her failing upwards. We see that time after time in British life. So that would be my, my two-word answer, British establishment. It's interesting what has made this happen now, but it, it seems to have been messages that were sent between officers at Charing Cross Police Station that was the final straw for Sadiq Khan. I suppose potentially that's because it, is that because it was impossible to justify and it was so many people, though, I mean, so many of these things are completely impossible to justify. The timing of this is very strange, isn't it? Because it, it does seem to me like there have been so many failures on the part of Cresta Dick, which, which, which should have warranted a resignation, but it's only now that Sadiq Khan has, has, has finally changed his mind. I mean, I assume he also spoke to Keir Starmer. I, I doubt this came as a surprise to the Labour leader. But we saw very recently, as, you know, as we've just showed you, after the Sarah Everard case, after a, a serving Met police officer had kidnapped, raped and, and murdered a young woman, and then the police had treated the people at her, her vigil like criminals. After that, both parties were backing this person. After that, Sadiq Khan was backing this person. But it's now because of these WhatsApp messages which were released between police officers at Charing Cross Station that she's gone. How do you assess why this change has happened right now instead of a year ago? I think the Sarah Everard stuff was explicitly political. And I think there's a worry by politicians, obviously wrongly, that they don't want to be seen as getting involved in traducing or criticising the police in a context of political protest. I don't agree with that, but it's explicable. I think what you saw with those leaked messages, Michael, and with the Koshka Duff story was effectively a culture of impunity, aggression, misogyny, racism, bigotry, which is, which is the everyday reality of the Metropolitan Police Service. You know, it's, it's not a big set piece of uh, policing of a particular protest. It's not a one-off. You can't put it down to a few bad apples. It's the whole, it's the whole barrel, really, if we're being quite honest. And, and, you know, also, Michael, I think you have to also return to a, a point, which is, look, these are the scandals we know about when it comes to Cresta Dick, when it comes to the London Metropolitan Police Service. And you would be naive to not think that politicians, particularly the mayor of London, don't know about others, or at least things in process, or at least rumors or speculation. Now, rumors and speculation, when you're talking about somebody potentially losing their job, you can't take them as seriously as, as facts. Of course you can't. But when you have a deluge of, of recorded, documented evidence of somebody being this bad at their job, and then I think you probably do have a number of rumors swirling around about very similar cases, then of course you take them seriously. And I think that's a basic act of political self-preservation on the part of Sadiq Khan. He had to tell her that she had to go. I think from the sounds of it, he asked her for an action plan. I mean, you're going to know the chronology of this better than I do. From what I've read, he wanted an action plan. What are you going to do about this? This is clearly unacceptable. And she didn't really think she had to produce anything. This is clearly unacceptable. How do we move away from this reality of the London Metropolitan Police Service? Well, I don't know. Maybe I'll, you know, write something on the, on the back of a napkin. That's clearly not good enough. The fact he asked her to go, and then she did, like you say, in such a quick turnaround, you have to suspect there were other people in her ear. Has to be. She wouldn't have gone purely on the back of the London mayor saying that if if the, if she knew that the Home Secretary and the Prime Minister and so on had her back, I find that very hard to believe. 
And I think, Michael, it's one of those cases which, you know, calls for Michael Walker at his most forensic. I'm sure you'll get to the bottom of it. The thing I don't have a, a good read on is exactly why Sadiq Khan made this decision now. I think in terms of her resigning, as far as the, the reports I've read have, have suggested, is that Priti Patel did did want Cressida Dick to stay on a bit longer, but Priti Patel had also said if Sadiq Khan makes a decision that she's going to go, she wasn't going to yeah. fight for her to stay. So, so I think Priti Patel wanted her to stay by consensus, but she wasn't willing to have that fight if Sadiq Khan wanted her to go. Because I think, you know, constitutionally... All the Home Secretary has to do is consult the Mayor of London. But I think in practice, there's never been a situation where there has been a, a Met Commissioner who hasn't had the support of, of the Mayor of London. So I, I think her resignation once Sadiq Khan changed his mind is not that mysterious. Why Sadiq Khan so suddenly changed his mind, I think that's what we kind of still need a, a more thorough explanation for. Let's look at who might replace her. We are delighted to see the back of Cressida Dick, who has overseen a metropolitan police shown time and time again to be institutionally misogynist, racist and homophobic. But before we get too carried away, we have another worry to contend with. Who will replace her? The next Met Commissioner will be appointed by Home Secretary Priti Patel in consultation with London Mayor Sadiq Khan. And Patel has penned an article in the Evening Standard, describing the criteria she will use when making her decision. Following a series of appalling incidents and too many historical cases involving serving Met police officers, it is clear that strong and decisive new leadership will be required to restore public confidence in our largest police force. The public in London and across the entire country must once again have confidence in the integrity and professionalism of the police officers who serve them. Policing culture and conduct have rightly come under scrutiny. Be in no doubt that a leader must tackle these institutional issues. She goes on, I will appoint a commissioner who will deliver results for the public that our police serve and represent beating crime, preventing crime, protecting our citizens, our streets and communities at a time when this government is investing record sums into the police is paramount. And above all, that's what I and the public across the country will want from the country's most senior police officer, someone focused on the basics of reducing violence in the city, tackling the abuse of women and girls, ridding our streets of drugs, knives and weapons, saving lives and protecting the public from those who wish to do them harm. Now, nothing particularly shocking in those words, not particularly disagreeable, but whether we trust Priti Patel to choose someone who can tackle the deep institutional problems facing the Met is another matter. As for who's in the frame for the country's top policing job, these are among those tipped in Friday's papers. Mark Rowley is a retired Met Assistant Commissioner for Special Operations. He backed the botched attempt for the Met to acquire water cannons, but is also on record as criticising the Met's over-reliance on stop and search. Andy Cook used to head the Merseyside police, while in Liverpool, Mr Cook said violent criminals are not inherently bad people and that he'd rather pump billions into cutting poverty than upholding the law. Interesting claims. But also, according to the Mail, he gained a reputation for tough policing and for being a keen user of stop and search powers. Simon Byrne is also cited as a potential replacement. He is currently the Chief Constable of the Police Service of Northern Ireland, who the Guardian say could be the shock and awe candidate for the job. He is apparently feared by some in the rank and file and more so by middle ranks. 
Also mentioned in The Guardian is Louisa Rolfe. She is described as a leader and specialist on tackling violence against women. She is a Met Assistant Commissioner and is apparently highly regarded within policing. Now, given the Met's terrible record on violence against women, one would hope she would represent an improvement. It can't get much worse. Whoever the candidate, the potential influence of Boris Johnson in any recruitment process has become a source of controversy. That's because he's currently at the centre of a criminal investigation over illegal parties thrown during lockdown. Lib Dem leader Ed Davey said, Boris Johnson must have no role in choosing Cressida Dick's successor to lead the Met. A man under criminal investigation by the Met should not be able to choose who's in charge of it. Boris Johnson doesn't have a formal role in the appointment of the new Met boss, but that, of course, doesn't mean he won't have influence over it. Priti Patel, who does make the decision, is obviously a very close ally of Boris Johnson. Amid increasing tensions between Russia and the West, cool heads are needed. For Keir Starmer, though, it's an opportunity to bang the drums of war. On Thursday, the Labour leader travelled to Brussels to meet the General Secretary of NATO, and he also published this op-ed in The Guardian. Under my leadership, Labour's commitment to NATO is unshakable. That commitment from Starmer surprised no one. Labour was committed to remaining in NATO in both its 2017 and 2019 manifestos. It will obviously do so at the next election. But the article had another purpose. It was a thinly veiled attack on the left. Starmer writes, nobody wants war. At first glance, some on the left may be sympathetic to those siren voices who condemn NATO, but to condemn NATO is to condemn the guarantee of democracy and security it brings, and which our allies in Eastern and Central Europe are relying on as the sabre-rattling from Moscow grows ever louder. He goes on that that's why the likes of the Stop the War Coalition are not benign voices for peace. At best, they are naive. At worst, they actively give succor to authoritarian leaders who directly threaten democracies. There is nothing progressive in showing solidarity with the aggressor when our allies need our solidarity and, crucially, our practical assistance now more than ever. The knee-jerk reflex, Britain, Canada, the United States, France, wrong, their enemies right, is unthinking conservatism at its worst. Now, this is a pretty odd statement. As far as I know, no one has declared their solidarity with Putin in the Stop the War Coalition. Instead, members of that group, such as Jeremy Corbyn and Diane Abbott, question whether the West, by expanding NATO to Russia's border, may share some responsibility for any increase in tensions stop the war, of course, also warn against escalating the current conflict. But avoiding escalation doesn't appear to be a concern of Keir Starmer. He writes, Russian tanks sit, engines revving on the verge of annexing Ukraine. But protest placards waved here by the usual suspects condemn NATO, not Moscow. Any equating of the right of a sovereign nation to determine its own future, even to exist, and the vicious aggression of a neighbour is an intellectual sham. To do so is not merely misguided, it is morally wrong. Now, this part of Keir Starmer's op-ed is really, really bizarre. There are, of course, genuine fears Russia will use military action against Ukraine, potentially imminently. But no one seriously is suggesting they are on the verge of annexing the country. Now that's, that's a very, very different claim. Moscow's hardline leadership won't see a rally on the streets of Britain as a reason to pull its tanks from Ukraine's borders. All it will see is naivety and weakness, 
Virtue Signal is in the West providing a smokescreen so it can go on beating up and jailing those brave individuals who dare to stand up to its despotism on the street of Russia. Now, this is the point where this whole op-ed just moves from sort of being cynical and ill-informed to being completely, completely ridiculous. No one at Stop the War thinks that when they protest against an escalation in tensions between the United States and Russia and any sort of you know, potential military conflict, they're going to persuade Russia not to invade Ukraine. That's just a complete, he's just sort of living in, in la-la land. That, that, that's not the criteria they want to be assessed by. And what's super worrying here, I think, is that we have a situation where Keir Starmer is, is both suggesting things are going to happen, which there's very little evidence of, I say, the annexing of Ukraine. Obviously, there are lots of people talking about an invasion. I think, I think that's very possible. But the idea that we could see the annexation of Ukraine is, is just not demonstrated by the evidence in any way whatsoever. And then to try and suggest that anyone who is critical of the current dominant narrative is essentially you know, a traitor, someone who is giving succor to our enemies. I mean, we've seen where this goes before, right? We've, this is exactly the kind of things we heard before the Iraq war when Keir Starmer was standing on the opposite side. He was arguing against that. Now he's leader of the Labour Party. He's saying anyone who's questioning the dominant narrative on Ukraine, Russia, actually, to be honest, he's kind of to the right of the dominant narrative if we're looking at France, Germany, and even the United States. He's saying they're now suddenly traitors. Michael, what a remarkable, remarkable piece. I mean, the whole idea of anti-war activists is as quote-unquote virtue signalers. You know, you have to ask, who wrote that article? It was just a, it was a complete wasn't just a vault fast from when he was uh, arguing against entering the Iraq war, Michael. This was a guy who, among his 10 pledges, said that labor foreign policy would be built on human rights. Now, that doesn't mean you give Putin carte blanche in Ukraine. Of course it doesn't. But at the same time, I, I feel like somebody who really cares about human rights and foreign policy doesn't call the anti-war movement virtue signalers. Also, it's politics. People are allowed to signal their virtue. That's, that's the point of protest. You're trying to make a signal to politicians about what you want them to do and not do. And also, let's be realistic, what has NATO done in the 21st century that worked out? You know, in Libya, several hundred miles from the southern coast of Europe, you've got open-air slave markets. You've got Afghanistan, 20 years after invasion, the Taliban are back in charge, 20 million people are facing starvation. So NATO's record is at best mixed, right? At best, even for the supporters and the people who've been most on the nose about that in recent history are being called the most ridiculous names, demonized, being told, basically, like you just said there, Michael, that they're illegitimate in public life. Now, very quickly, why is that happening? Because the propositional argument for British foreign policy, as it was after 9-11, which is we will execute expeditionary warfare wherever and whenever the United States tells us that is so deeply unpopular with the British public that you have to mischaracterize and defame the very voices who were right about virtually everything when it came to foreign and security policy since 2000, which is stop the war and the likes of Jeremy Corbyn. So for me, it's dirty politics. You can't make the arguments because you know they're deeply unpopular. So you misrepresent and lie about the people who've been consistently right. Let's get an update of what is going on now, because there is sort of some, some breaking news. Nick Schifrin is defence correspondent at PBS. He reported earlier 
the US believes Russian President Vladimir Putin has decided to invade Ukraine and has communicated that decision to the Russian military. Free Western and defense officials tell me. He also tweeted that he is told the US expect the invasion to begin next week. And he says US officials anticipate a horrific, bloody campaign that begins with two days of aerial bombardment and electronic warfare, followed by an invasion with the possible goal of regime changed. The UK has also advised all British nationals to leave Ukraine. Aaron, how would you how do you interpret this? A sudden dramatic, quite sort of rise in in the warnings from the United States and the UK. Do you see this as just sort of bluffing? Or or do you think that we might see a war in the next few days? Very plausible. I mean, there's a huge troop buildup. The US and the UK are asking their nationals to leave Ukraine. Very plausible. And, you know, recent history, of course, says it's very plausible. Look at what happens with Crimea. Look at uh, effectively a kind of low-level war in the east of Ukraine. Nobody's saying that this isn't going to happen. You know, even stop the war are quite critical of Vladimir Putin. Nobody is saying that. What they're saying is, how can we tone this down? How can we try and avoid conflict? And that is obviously through trying to negotiate a certain political outcome, which is probably explicitly saying NATO will never allow entry of Ukraine into the alliance. That's probably one thing that they they probably need to say. Now, watching this can agree or disagree, but that's the kind of negotiation you would need to reach to avoid a military escalation. That's all. That doesn't mean that, you know, the Russians are the good guys. Nobody, nobody is saying that. What you're seeing in Ukraine, though, it's really a crucible of competing interests between the US various European countries, Russia, and its domestic elite. And I don't think we talk about this nearly enough, Michael, in regards to Ukraine. The fight within that country is the fight within its domestic elite. People like Yushchenko, Yanukovych, Poroshenko, you know, Yulia Tymoshenko, very powerful people sponsored by effectively outside interests to advance those interests within Ukraine, which really is, you know, Ukraine, it's sort of etymology as a word, it is very much a borderland between between Russia and Europe. And so, of course, strategically, it's of huge importance. So it's a bit more complicated than saying the good guys, the bad guys. Both sides have done terrible things. You know, Yanukovych, I think, I think he was found guilty. He's a rapist. He was found guilty of sexual assault. Nobody's saying he's the good guy. Equally, when Yushchenko won, the guy who was poisoned, you know, in the subsequent elections, I think he got, I think he got something like five to ten percent because he was so unpopular because he didn't deliver rising living standards to the average Ukrainian. So it's a hugely complicated matter. Russian military intervention very possible in the twenty first century. You think, oh come on, we don't do that anymore. But you see it in Georgia in two thousand and eight. You see it in Crimea in twenty fourteen. Of course, it's very possible. It's also very avoidable. At the same time, I'll finish with this, Michael. We have seen repeatedly from Western intelligence agencies, from the US State Department, effectively things that aren't true. Uh, this, this may be that, it may not be. I mean, if I had to put money on it, I'd say that Russia probably will try something this spring. That may be wrong. I, I, what I would say to our audience is, do not take at face value statements being made by the State Department about what's going to happen in several days. I, I totally agree with that. I, at the same time, it's kind of worth saying that the State Department is actually sounding a little bit more reasonable than Keir Starmer because the State Department is not saying Russia is about to annex Ukraine. When I tweeted, this is completely bizarre what Keir Starmer is saying. People are like, no, but they've already annexed Crimea. Yes, Russia did annex Crimea. That was against international law. Not a good thing. But Crimea is a place where the majority of people there are ethnically Russian, Russian speakers. It's a very, very different kettle of fish to annexing Kiev. You know, if, if Russia annexed Kiev, they'd have to fight a bit of a kind of permanent war, like it would be disastrous. And that's just not what's going to happen. Like may, maybe I'll 
be really embarrassed in a month's time because Russia is next Ukraine. But I just do not see that as a likely outcome. I think regime change is possible. But what Russia, it seems, want to do is they want to make sure that Ukraine can never properly integrate itself into the orbit of the Western economy and the Western military alliance. Also worth noting, actually, that there are arguments that it was Zelensky and, and the Ukrainians, as well as some people in America, who kind of prompted this round of, of, of standoffs, which isn't to say they're in the wrong. They were trying to renegotiate uh, an agreement which they signed when they were the subject of a military defeat. You know, not a completely unreasonable thing to do. But it's not just the case that Putin was like, ah, oh, what am I going to do now? I'm going to bully a neighbor. And, that, and that's the end of the story, which is basically what Keir Starmer is saying. Let's look at what the big players are saying. Putin met with French President Emmanuel Macron this week. He delivered this message to Western audiences. I'd like to underscore this once again. Even though I've already mentioned it, I'd really love if you really hear me and uh, bring this point uh, to your audience. That if Ukraine is part of NATO, and if they decide to return Crimea using military means, European countries will automatically be at war with Russia. The military capacities of NATO and Russia are incomparable, even though Russia is a military uh, superpower, a nuclear superpower. There will be no winners, and you will be drawn into this conflict against your own will. It'll happen before you can say knife. And uh, neither Mr. Macron or myself want such a development. This is uh, why Mr. Macron is here and uh, is tormenting me with all these questions and possible options. That was Putin. We can now go to a comment from Joe Biden. And there's no way we were ever going to unite Ukraine. I mean, excuse me, Iraq, Afghanistan. No way that was going to happen. Aaron, Joe Biden there. We couldn't unite Ukraine. No, I mean Iraq. No, I mean Afghanistan. He was obviously talking about a different foreign policy failure. That's what he was supposed to be talking about anyway. Putin there, though. I mean, that particular clip has been shared a lot. I mean, he, he sounds very aggressive in it almost threatening nuclear war. At the same time, he's there saying, I want to say this to your audience. And I think the reason he wants to say that to Western audience is because he kind of knows rightly that the publics of the United States and the United Kingdom, they don't want to go to war with Russia over Ukraine. And I think he kind of feels like that's his trump card. And also, Michael, I think the point you made previously about Crimea, it's, it's completely spot on. Crimea was, you know, Sebastopol was one of the home sort of ports of the Russian Navy. I think the first or second most important sort of site of the Russian Navy. They had an agreement with Ukraine when it left in the 90s that they would, they would remain there. So the idea that a country would join potentially NATO, and that would also be one of the sort of key sites of the Russian Navy, like you say, overwhelmingly Russian speakers. I don't want to get into arguments about whether it was right or wrong, but it was just a very unique part of Ukraine when you compare it to the rest of the country, even the Donbass region. Quite, quite unique what was going on with Crimea. And I think you're right. I think the Russians know that they would have a very similar experience to what happened in Afghanistan in the 1980s if they went into the Ukraine and did awe and decimation and destruction like they did with the Chechens in the 90s, like the U US did with Iraq. 
it'd be very, very hard. Of course, what would work instead is regime change. You decapitate the leadership. You, you try and use a bit of coercion, but also a bit of consent. And like you say, you cut them off from the possibility of integration with the West, both economically and its de- defense apparatus. That makes more sense. It's more plausible. But it is, I mean, it is quite a new thing, Michael. You know, the, the, the prospect of NATO going to Ukraine or Belarus, you know, these are countries which are viewed as part of a greater Russia. I'm not saying they should be part of Russia. I don't believe in the idea of sort of a, a greater entity of any country. You know, I think if people want to be sovereign, you know, they, they should be sovereign. I believe in a national right to self-determination. But the prospect of a, that, a country like Ukraine joining NATO, having potentially US forces along a major land border for Russia, I mean, it's, I mean, it's, it's going to be an issue for them. Now, Russia's had NATO members on its borders for years. You know, Norway, which is a border of Norway, that was one of the original NATO members. Turkey joins a little bit later. They have a border with Russia on the south, obviously the Black Sea. But this would be quite different. You know, Kiev is, is the mythos of, of, of the Russian nation and its origins are tied up with Kiev. And so the idea that you have Ukraine in NATO, US soldiers there, missiles pointed at Moscow, Again, if that's what Ukrainians want, fine. But you can also understand how that's leveraged by Putin to a domestic audience and how he gets consent for the kind of troop buildup you're seeing now on the Russia-Ukraine border. So, I mean, it is frightening. I agree with you. And I do think of all the major world leaders, Michael, Putin is something of an outlier in so much as he's obviously, he's a sophisticated thinker, but I do also think he's more prone to taking risks than what we what we think of as Western leaders. I mean, certainly post Bush and Bush and Blair, Medvedev was was in charge, I think, for the Georgia War. But you know, Medvedev is effect- effectively a frontman for Putin. You know, and, and like I say, Russia's been involved in two major conflicts since two thousand eight: Georgia and Crimea, and both were with countries that were looking at potential prospects for for NATO membership. So this this would be keeping in with the pattern. So that's why I think sort of discarding it as impossible saying oh you know i think that's quite dangerous and ultimately look you're looking at you're looking at a major nuclear power when you look at the tank divisions of russia michael i think i think the uk for instance is about two percent of russia's tank divisions and i think there's a lot of people in britain you know who may be remotely acquainted with the news who think that the russian military is weak when actually their tank divisions and their you know their artillery and so on has been completely overhauled in the last 10 years and actually you know they are they are a decent fighting force. No, they couldn't take on the Americans, for instance. But Putin is absolutely right to say that they could do real damage to NATO and Ukraine. Absolutely. Obviously, it's a horrific thing to say. But going back to the Keir Starmer article, Michael, you know, he said that anti-war sort of activists are conservative. You're damn right I'm conservative. I'm very risk averse when it comes to us deploying our compatriots in a war thousands of miles away and potentially many thousands of them dying. I think that should be avoided. Yes. It's a common feature of the contemporary mainstream media that a few tweets from random accounts can fuel a 48-hour culture wars news cycle. We've seen it before. We'll see it again. But I'm not sure there'll ever be a more perfect example than the case of Adele at the Brits this week. The year's Brit Awards were for the first time this year gender neutral. There were no male or female categories. So instead of best male artist and best female artist, there was just best artist. And there was the same for best song, etc, etc. This had already created controversy in some quarters. And after this moment in Adele's acceptance speech for best artist, that controversy went into overdrive. I'm 
understand why the name of this award has changed, but I really love being a woman and being a female artist. I do. I do. Adele saying she loved being a woman at a gender-neutral awards ceremony apparently infuriated online trans rights activists who assumed Adele had outed herself as a trans-exclusionary radical feminist. According to the New York Post, Adele was slammed for telling gender-neutral award show she loves being a woman. The Express explained that Adele had to be defended by fans over her turf claim. And the more highbrow, the more respectable Times reported that music fans have leapt to the defense of Adele after the singer was criticized for saying that she loved being a woman. The row had a very international flavor. We've already shown you the headline from the New York Post. This is how it was covered on Fox News. That was Helen Reddy's 1971 super hit, I Am Woman. Adele now echoing a similar message at the Brit Awards becoming the woke folks' next target. Uh Uh-oh. She's accused of transphobia by declaring she loves being a woman at the gender-neutral award show Tuesday. Adele made the remark while accepting an Artist of the Year award. That category merges the old Best Female and Best Male awards. People on social media were outraged, some calling her a trans-exclusionary radical feminist. This comes just two weeks after Adele tearfully postponed her Las Vegas residency due to COVID delays. And of course, you know my big beef was she waited until the last second and the money had already rolled in, but I guess they're going to give some of that back so maybe they can make it right. Closer to home, the usual suspects were out in force defending a star against the woke mob. Piers Morgan, now employed by Rupert Murdoch, shared the aforementioned article in the Murdoch-owned New York Post with the caption, Absolutely shameful. How dare Adele have the brass neck audacity to ignore gender neutral bullshit and take pride in being female. She's clearly an evil turf who must be cancelled immediately. He went on to tell the Murdoch owned son, for fuck's sake, when people ask me, what's your new show going to be about? The answer is that among other things, it's going to be about me cancelling the woke imbeciles who think it's okay to bully and terrorize women into denying their own existence. The new show is, of course, on the Murdoch-owned Talk TV. One more tweet for you. It's from Ian Dale, LBC host and author of Why Can't We All Just Get Along? He said, at the Brits, in her moment of triumph, Adele proclaimed, I really love being a woman and being a female artist. I do. I do. I'm really proud of us. She is now being cancelled as a turf. The world has gone truly mad when a woman can't talk about how she feels being a woman. Now, of course, on on one level, Ian Dale is right. The world would have gone truly mad if a woman couldn't talk about how she feels being a woman. The problem, despite this entire media storm, which I've just laid out for you, the original cancellation never happened. Let's go back to the New York Post article I started with. This is the only evidence they provide of Adele being slammed. So they say, Quotes, please, no, Adele can't be a turf, a staunch feminist performer named Jacob told his thousands of Twitter followers. Who'd have thought Adele was a transphobe and would use her platform to call for the destruction of the trans community, especially the confused teenagers? Another long-time Twitter user posted. Others complained that they had lost a lot of respect for Adele and would no longer spend a cent on her music, the Times of London noted. So this whole story is on the basis of free tweets. The first was from 
this guy, Jacob, has 3,600 followers. His tweets are now protected. The third tweet, I assume they can no longer find, hence they referenced a Times article. By the way, if you go to that Times article, you can't find that quote. I think they must have got rid of it after realizing potentially, you know, the tweet was not what they thought it was. It is the second one that is the most interesting, though. The New York Post quotes who they call a long-time Twitter user. But when you click through on the link, you get to this. Um, so it's by an account called Pumpf. It has 383 followers. And she says, who'd have thought Adele was a transphobe and would use her platform to call for the destruction of the trans community, especially the confused teenagers? Now, that tweet only has 19 likes. In fact, I looked yesterday when the New York Post article was published, it had 10 likes. And it's followed up by this. Obviously, Adele stating that she really loves being a woman does not make her transphobic, nor does it give people an excuse to use the thinly veiled slur, turf against her or any woman standing for biological reality. As this tweet makes clear, this 300 follower account wasn't even critical of Adele. She was ironically tweeting in what she believed to be the style of a trans rights activist. She was sort of mocking in a very unsympathetic way trans rights activists. In short, she had the precise opposite view to that ascribed to her, but it still formed the basis of a 48-hour international news story. Aaron, this whole row is essentially a hoax. Do the likes of Piers Morgan ever feel embarrassed? I mean, I don't think so, Michael. The evidence would suggest not. It's a tough one because, you know, when I see newspapers and, and TV channels covering on Twitter, somebody said this, you think, you're signing your own death warrant, surely. This isn't news. You're, 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 you're on, people are making the effort to watch your TV program and you're telling them a story about somebody they could have just, if they want to go on their phone, they can see it for themselves. Where's the value there? So I think in the long term, over the next 10 to 20 years, that genre of journalism is kill it's killing itself. Because like I said, I don't think you're adding value. I think people will look at that and go, you know, young people will think, this is a lot of shit. I'll go on TikTok or Instagram or even print journalism, I think will hold up actually quite well. This is just mind-numbingly stupid. So in terms of that genre of journalism, I don't think it's got a future, but they've been doing it for a long time. And, you know, this is the whole ecology, right? Like you say, the New York Post, murder, murder New York Post, or at least it used to be, I don't know if it is anymore, maybe you bought it back. And this is the story that's being picked up by Piers Morgan. Maybe he's going to talk about it in his next book, which is, of course, I think it's at HarperCollins. Is it HarperCollins that's owned by Murdoch? And, of course, then he'll talk about it on his new show, which is also with Murdoch. And he might go on talk radio, which is also Murdoch. And then maybe he'll go on Sky to talk about it, which used to be owned by Murdoch. You know, you've got this whole alternative reality based on nonsense and trivia, which is the Murdoch Empire. But that has been that has been the sort of dominating media environment for, for a few decades. So the idea that it's sort of washed up already, I wouldn't be so confident, but, it, but it's clearly on its way out. I think, particularly for younger audiences, they just look at this and think, what the hell are you talking about? The story has a reasonably happy ending. Adele has attended G.A.Y.'s Porn Idol Club Night. She would go on to tell the crowd, you're all women who identify as women. So responding to all of this ridiculous coverage. We love you, Adele. I love a story. Well, does it have a happy ending? I suppose all of these media concoctions will still continue. But I thought, you know, Adele dealt with that very well. 
Labour have suspended the whip from Bermondsey MP Neil Coyle. Coyle, who has long been known for aggressive late-night Twitter rants and overt hostility to left-wingers, has now been accused of racially abusing a journalist. Henry Dyer is a reporter at Business Insider. On Thursday, he wrote that on Tuesday, February the 1st, I went for a Chinese New Year dinner with my family, then returned to Parliament for work before going to Strangers Bar. I had been at Strangers the previous evening and witnessed Neil Coyle, a Labour MP, angrily shouting at a Labour staffer I know personally, silencing the bar. This led to reports on Twitter that evening and later in the mail on Sunday. On Tuesday evening, I spoke to other journalists at Strangers. Coyle approached a small group I was in. The topic eventually moved to Barry Gardner, the Labour MP who had received funding from a suspected Chinese spy. Coyle made a remark suggesting Gardner was being paid by Fu Manchu, a comment that stuck me at the time as not right, given it had been well reported who had been giving Gardner money, and so there was no need to refer to a 20th century trope of a Chinese supervillain. I gently pushed back at Coyle about this. He asked me if it was just the case that I was being oversensitive before saying that he would apologise if he had said something bad and it wasn't just me being sensitive, which I believe was insincere. He then said that he had relatives of Chinese descent. I responded by saying that I'm British Chinese, to which Coyle responded that he could tell from how you look like you've been giving renminbi, which is the Chinese currency, to Barry Gardner. Dyer said that as he left the bar, he said a polite goodbye to Coyle, trying to diffuse the tension. Coyle then put two fingers up to him. After the incident, Dyer complained to the Speaker of the House, who banned Coyle from various bars in Parliament. The Labour whips were also informed, but the decision to suspend Coyle from the PLP only happened after Dyer went public. The response from journalists made it clear these allegations against Neil Coyle came as no surprise. Political's Politico's Alex Wickham tweeted, Henry's one of the best young journalists in the country. Coyle should have been out of Westminster years ago, and everybody knows it. Eleni Correa quoted a Labour MP saying, Coyle has form at being abusive and obnoxious in the strangers bar, but these racist remarks take it to another level. This should be investigated thoroughly by the party and the whip should be removed while that takes place. Now, of course, it, it might have been useful to have mentioned some of that earlier. If this has been known for such a long time, maybe people could have mentioned it before. For example, maybe they could have mentioned it in 2017 when Coyle claimed an investigation by the Labour whips into his behaviour was just a politically motivated smear campaign. Aaron, what's your take on the suspension of Neil Coyle and this particularly nasty sounding incident? First of all, it's a really horrific instance of, of racism. You know, there's, there's nothing which can be misinterpreted. He said something which was deeply racist, sinophobic to a British Chinese journalist. And as they try to de-escalate the situation, he tells them to fuck off. So I think that, that's the first thing. There's no ambiguity here. Secondly, and it hasn't happened, and I want to know why, Michael, why isn't anybody saying, well, Neil Coyle made this sinophobic comment about a journalist. That means that the Labour right has a problem with sinophobia. Nobody's saying that the disgusting actions of a single individual speak more broadly and reflect a problem for their political tradition. Of course, if the left has somebody who does something which is unacceptable or wrong, it can happen. Look at, you know, Jared Amara. What does this say about the Labour left and their attitude towards sexism and, and, and male violence? I mean, let's just, let's just hold Jared Amara accountable. It's a start, right? And if this was, if this was a left-wing Labour MP, I think the reception would be very different. You know, we would have Ian Dale, 
oh, this says so much about growing xenophobia amongst the Labour left. You'd have James O'Brien having one of his weekly aneurysms. You would have a Politico email. You'd have, you know, Top of the Hour, Radio 4, BBC News, Today programme, Times Editorials, The Sun, Labour and the left have a problem with xenophobia. It's time we start to talk about it. Tony Blair, I always knew the Labour left was xenophobic. Peter Mandelson, they've always hated China. But it's the Labour right. It's just one guy. We're not going to say how this reflects a broader problem. See how it works. And the other thing to point out is, you know, from that description by the journalist from Insider, it, it seems as if the Labour whips were informed, you know, a while ago, potentially around a week ago. And this suspension has only happened after this whole thing became public. Now, as you say, Aaron, sort of going back to your examples, if this had been when Jeremy Corbyn was leader and there had been an allegation of, I mean, what seems like obvious racism from a journalist and the party whips hadn't acted until the victim went public, I mean, we wouldn't hear the end of, of the fact that the, the disciplinary processes were completely defunct and this is obviously an institutional problem. But now I haven't seen any mainstream journalists question why it took the person to go public if they'd been informed beforehand. I suppose you can make your own mind up what's what's going on there. Um, I do want to show you one more clip of, or one more clip, which involves Neil Coyle, because he is such an obnoxious bloke, he can even make Therese Coffey appear charming. Watch this moment from a Work and Pensions Select Committee this week. A yellow card. So actually well, saying I've, I've to... tried to say to you, Neil, I don't recall the specific details, and I will come back to you. I just have to say, it's really disappointing that you've turned up and you've been unable to answer so many questions. It is I've it's embarrassing. Quest I've answered questions largely that where I can answer them. There are some things I don't recall specifically. And you're asking me questions that other government departments are responsible for. I just think, I mean, there was a rumour that the Secretary was going to resign. Is, is that the reason you can't answer any questions today? Because you've got one foot out the door? Oh, don't be ridiculous, Neil. You know, if you want to bring up gossip... I could bring up other stuff that happened downstairs. I don't think that's appropriate for this select committee. Thank you. It's understood Coffey was referring to Coyle's behaviour the night before he is alleged to have levelled racist abuse at Henry Dyer. I tweeted yesterday that Neil Coyle is, it's a crowded field, but he is by far and away um, sort of the most obnoxious, the most unpleasant person sitting on the Labour benches. Got a couple of replies, some of them from people who, you know, worked in and around the Labour Party who said, saying by a long way is probably going a little bit too far. How, how exceptional do you think he is as a Labour MP? Or do you think he is representative of, of something with a, a little bit broader going on? I think he is representative. And I don't think it's necessarily a political tradition. I think it definitely overlaps with the Labour right. But there is clearly a culture in the Labour Party and among its MPs, they think they're special. And you saw that around the sort of deselection thing, which I think is just basic accountability of members over, over political representatives of their parties in Parliament. You see it with the Lib Dems, with the SNP. They have to reselect the person before they go out to the general public to be voted on. And in Labour, this is, how, how dare you? This is disgusting. They view themselves as a very special cast of people insulated from, from, from broader energies and accountability. And I, I think this feeds into that. And I think somebody like Neil Coyle, I mean, think about this, Michael, you've got somebody who has spoken in such a disgusting way to a journalist in public, and when they try and de-escalate it, they tell him to fuck off. That tells you that instinctively Neil Coyle thought he could get away with it because presumably he's done this before. And if he's gotten away with it and he's done it before, that speaks to a broader problem of the C word, culture. Now, often when organizations talk about culture, it means they don't want to talk about it. They don't want to solve the problem. Culture, you know. 
well, actually, let's just talk about expelling people or, you know, getting new rules or mechanisms of accountability. Culture tends to mean very little. But I think in the boozy culture of Westminster, and it applies to all parties, but I think, well, particularly the Tories and the Labour Party, I, I do feel like there are a large, a surprisingly large number of MPs who, who kind of don't really feel like they have to behave in the public interest and they can just say and do what they want. And if you scrutinise them, you're an asshole. No, sorry, you work for us. It's this very, very, very strange relationship to the electorate and the public and accountability. And I, and I think it's not an accident. You know, you walk into the Palace of Westminster, you get subsidised wine, gold's everywhere. You know, you think the sun's shining out of your ass. The media, nine times out of ten, particularly from the Labour right, never question anything you say. Well, this time it, it seems he's taken it a step too far and he's going to pay the price. And I personally hope he's doesn't he's lost the whip. I, I, I personally hope he's expelled from the Labour Party. I don't see how you can explain this away, making such an overtly racist remark to a journalist. You know, there is no ambiguity here. And from what we've seen from sort of tweets from journalists, this is something which has been known for, for a long time. So one imagines he has, he has form on this. Let's wrap up there. We'll be back on Monday at 7pm. Have a great weekend. You've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.